everyone. Welcome back to another episode of the State of Play podcast, episode 29 here. I'm your host, Matt Santangelo. Pet and Martino are unfortunately not able to make this one, so I'm writing solo here. But luckily, I brought a very special guest on for this episode, our last episode of 2019, before we go into a little bit of a break and uh, you know, return at the beginning of 2020 with more content that you love. Joining me today for this episode is good friend of mine, Roberto Grosso. He's very knowledgeable in goalkeeping. Make sure you guys are following him on Twitter, and I'm sure he'll plug his handle for you guys. Roberto, pleasure to have you on. How are you doing, man? Hey, I'm doing fantastic. Thank you so much for having me on. And uh, uh, great that I'm going to be here for actually the final episode of the year. So I think this is going to be a great show. And again, thanks to uh, you, Pet and uh, Martino for having me on. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, this has been a long time coming. You know, I think, you know, those who are, uh, you know, frequent listeners of the State of Play podcast know the type of guests that we brought on. We try to make things interesting, try to bring a different perspective with each and every episode. And of course, you know, we really haven't had anybody come on and talk goalkeeping. So I think, you know, when we're going through the leagues here in our normal content, I think people are going to, uh, you'll get a lot of knowledge from you, especially in the goalkeeper department. But of course, we're ha- we have so much to talk about in this episode, and I want to make sure we end the year right. So before we get into our stories and main headlines, Make sure you guys are following us on Twitter at State of Play Pod. Make sure you guys are subscribing, leaving us those good reviews, and give us some feedback on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Fireside, wherever you're listening to your podcast. And we really do appreciate it because it's only going to help us grow and further what we want to do with this podcast. And shout out to Big Heads Media Network for the support and backing the entire year. We really do appreciate the um, you know the the backing and support they've given us to help propel this podcast forward and to keep us delivering the content to you guys, the listeners. So let's get into it, Roberto. So let's start off with the, uh, the UEFA Champions League draw. Now, at the time of recording here, this is late Monday night. So we have had at least about a day to digest um, the draw and, and really some of the matchups here. And I'm, I'm just pulling them up. Some of them I know which I heart, obviously, as a Serie A fan um, and, and where some of the Italian teams were drawn. But I'm going to go down the line here, Roberto. And I guess give me your initial thoughts your reaction um, to any specific fixture in mind that you feel that you want to kind of shed light on. Uh, we have Borussia Dortmund got drew with Paris Saint-Germain, Real Madrid with Manchester City, Atalanta with Valencia, Atletico Madrid with Liverpool, Chelsea with Bayern Munich, Lyon with Juventus, Tottenham with Leipzig, and Napoli with Barcelona. So, I mean, I guess out of those groups, I know there's a couple that I have in mind that I would like to kind of you know, shed some more light on and give my perspective. But let's start with you, Roberto. What are your initial react? What are your initial thoughts or reaction to the draw here? Are there any fixtures specifically that stand out? Do you find any upsets uh, that are possibly in the works? Do you find that some of these fixtures are kind of cut and dry? What are your thoughts? Um, I think right off the bat, if you look at it, um, we can pretty much agree that uh, Juventus got one of the more favorable draws uh, in, in the competition, um, especially in the situation now that Leon is in um, with, uh, you know, a bit of difficulties going on at the club, the, their, their, their poor form in the league. You know, they, they, they did manage to qualify um, in the group. Uh, although in, not as convincing as, as expected. But um, also the fact that Memphis Depay is out uh, with an ACL injury. So if you try to put all those things together, you would expect that, that this would be an easy home and away um, win for, for Juve, an easy chance for them to progress. Of course, um, it's, easy to, it's easy to say just on paper, like, hey, you know what? It's going to be a guaranteed win. They're going to walk through it. Um, but at the same time, 
you can't you 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 got to be careful um, in these certain draws here. Uh, again, it is in the Champions League round of 16. There is anything that really could happen. So I do think that, especially seeing that if Maurizio Sarri sticks with the triumvirate up front of Ronaldo, Higuain, and Dybala into the Champions League, plays it on a replay on a regular basis, that they do have a, a extremely good odds on on getting through in this in this tie here. Um, so I do think out of all the teams, they're the ones that pretty much got the quote-unquote easiest draw. Although um, we have seen in the past that like Juve sometimes like to make it a bit hard on themselves. Um, but uh, I do believe that this is one that is manageable. Um, Atalanta and Valencia stood out really uh, much for me. For the simple fact that you know you take into account the odds that... Atalanta have to go through to just get into the round of 16. They had lost their first. Uh, they lost their first game. They tied their second. Uh, they, sorry, they lost the first three games of the group, and they put themselves in a situation that made it extremely difficult to progress, especially being uh, Champions League newcomers. And you know, in the situation that they're in, many teams would have probably folded up and said, "You know what." We're probably going to look forward to the EL or it's, you know, it's our first time in the competition. Just being there was good enough, but it's incredible how Gasparini was able to take the squad and turn things around and, you know, with the players and everybody uniting to be able to find a way into the round of 16. Um, of course, going up against a team like Valencia who, um, you know, do have the experience in the Champions League, which, of course, again, on paper, compared to Atalanta, uh, Atalanta doesn't have that experience, being it their first time there. Um, but I, I would love to say that they do have a possibility of getting through, um, especially that they managed to avoid uh, a Paris Saint-Germain, Bayern, and a Barcelona. So I think that kind of helped them in, in that aspect. Um, but I... I do think that they have a pretty good chance of, of getting through here. Um, and going into, into the tie with, with Napoli and Barcelona, I think this is probably one of the games that Gattuso would have loved to avoid. I mean, this is his Champions League debut as a manager, and of all draws to get, um, you're going to be heading over to the Camp Nou. So if you take into consideration what has been going through uh, in Naples um, in the last couple of months, with the mutiny in the club and players not carrying their weight, Ancelotti being sacked, uh, Oriolo de Laurentiis pretty much calling out the players. And sort of, you know, we, we saw, we actually heard everything that's been going on during um, the league campaign in Serie A with them. And now Gattuso's taking over in sort of a very uh, peculiar situation. So I think it's, this is going to be um, quite a difficult situation for him. Uh, but I think it will be probably one of the biggest tests, sort of like a baptism of fire for him going into uh, as head coach into the Champions League. But it's going to be um, really, really good to see, uh, for one, um, Alex Meret against uh, Marc-Andre Stegen. And that's probably going to be one of the key matchups that I'm going to be interested in seeing. Um, and, you know, if you really want to continue on the goalkeeping aspect, um, you know, uh, Berkey versus Navas is going to be incredible to see. You're going to have uh, Ederson and Thibaut Courtois, especially Oblak and Allison is probably going to be the marquee matchup uh, for goalkeepers in that group. And I think that's actually going to be one of the more entertaining draws also in the fact that Liverpool will probably have one of their toughest tests to get through, uh, seeing in, in the type of 
uh, system that they have to hopefully try to get through that that staunch solid block wall of you know a four four two that Diego Simeon has there at Atletico Madrid that are going to make things extremely difficult. But um, I'm just really anxious to see Allison versus Old Black, and it's probably going to be one of the biggest uh, goalkeeping matchups that we hope to see. Yeah, absolutely. I think you, you touched on some really good things, especially with uh, you know the goalkeeping side of things. For me, I think you know looking you know at this list uh, once, twice, and three times so far. One of the matches that stands out for me, um, you know, is that Real Madrid Manchester City because I think you know Manchester City have been a club that's uh, you know since Pep Guardiola took over and really since they've kind of started splashing that money, investing that money into the squad to be more than just Premier League champions and win more than just domestic silverware. I mean, this is a tough draw to get, right? I mean, this is that first matchup for Pep Guardiola and uh, Zinedine Zidane as coaches. So I think there's a lot of fascinating storylines and, de- and things developing as we head into these fixtures. And I think you, you touched on some good things with Napoli and Barcelona as well. Uh, I, I tweeted something earlier today, and, you know, uh, it, it, given their current situation at Napoli, this obviously, you know, is, is a very unfortunate, very unlucky draw, right? You never want to be playing, excuse me, Barcelona, uh, given the fact that, you know, you're struggling and Barcelona are a club that, you know, at any turn can really turn it on and start burying goals left, right, front, and center. I think Napoli have to kind of take this, you know, match and really should prove something. I think, you know, it's obviously going to be very difficult for them to advance, you know, aside from the fact that Juve have one of the more favorable draws, uh, as you mentioned, against Lyon for all, all the reasons you discussed, and also as well as for Atalanta, who, you know, many didn't expect to get to this point. But, you know, Valencia are a team that out of the last 16, I think they're one of the few that you'd probably like to see it versus uh, the likes of Real Madrid, some of these uh, bigger sides that are battle-tested in this competition, right? So, uh, you know, getting on to Dortmund in Paris real quick before we move on to uh, the Premier League, I think that this, this one is fascinating. I think Paris and Germain have to be very careful. I think they had a very good group stage. Uh, specifically Mario Riccardi was fantastic. I think he had something like five goals and he's kind of building this reputation, uh, you know, between last year at Inter, when obviously they didn't get out of the group and also this year at Paris Saint-Germain, uh, you know, between the two comp- between the two group stages, he has, well, I think, nine goals in 12 matches. And I think it speaks volumes as the type of striker he has grown to be over the years, right? He's waited so long to get into this competition, Inter finding in the Champions League last year. And all of a sudden he's, finally delivering at the big stage and he's making that what 60 70 million option seem like peanuts in the grand scheme of things right I don't I don't think you're going to find many strikers who are producing as much as he is in the prime of his career for 60 to 70 million right I think obviously you can take some of the baggage that he probably brings with him and his wife but so far he's been pretty tame I think he looks like he's liking uh, and enjoying life in Paris and you know with a healthy Neymar with Mbappe I mean that's a really good try to and then you throw Edison Cavani who can score this competition you look at Paris and Germain top to bottom and I think they're going to be one of those teams where in this round of 16 matchup with Borussia Dortmund can really put their foot down and kind of cement themselves as one of the legitimate favorites. I think this is the tournament they've really struggled to advance far in over the years after all the money they spent, you know, and obviously they had uh, the, 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 the collapse against Barcelona. So it's been a long time coming from them. I think, you know, they still have some players intact from those teams that they really have to kind of build on that and take it in stride and, and, you know, put an end to their, their uh, abysmal Champions League record in the, or the knockout stages and, and show up with something special here, a convincing performance over two legs. So, the, the, you know, I think it's going to be interesting to see how things de- develop 
uh, as we get approach these fixtures, of course, with the January transfer window in mind, uh, what clubs uh, out of these 16 do make necessary additions to their squad, which uh, you know, clubs have changing managers. Remember, you got Napoli with Cattuso, you have Tottenham with Jose Marino now. So there are names changing you know, uh, in this mix, and it's not I- ideal for them. But at the same time, you have to take these uh, knockout matches in stride and, and try to build off them. So uh, let's move on to the Premier League, because I think obviously you know, <laughs> over the course of our 29 episodes, uh, or 28 episodes so far, the Premier League is always one that uh, we like to start with, because I think there's always a lot of things going on. And of course, Pep being an Arsenal fan, things haven't been too, uh, too easy for him to stomach over the years. So... Uh, over the weekend, uh, you know, Chelsea, they fell to Bournemouth 1-0. Obviously, Chelsea, we've talked about them at nauseum. They had a lot of youth players. Eventually, we kind of expected them to kind of maybe drop points at certain points of the season. And it feels like they're in that position where they are struggling a little bit. Frank Lampard has done an exceptional job in year one as manager. But I think it's clear their youth uh, is starting to kind of show at certain certain moments. And I think this is a prime example of that. But, you know, I, I don't want to go too much into the result of the performance itself. I want to – we brought you on to kind of discuss some of the um, the goalkeeping aspects of the goalkeepers uh, of world football. And I think, you know, one of the hot names uh, that's been uh, talked about quite a bit over the, really since he arrived at Chelsea at Stafford Bridge has been Kepa. Now – of course, we all saw what happened in the in the in the penalty shootout last year, where uh, Kepa was was about to get yanked off by, by Maurizio Sarri. He refused, and he stayed on, and there was a whole thing with that. Kepa has had his moments where he's looked promising. He looks as though he is going to fulfill that that lofty price tag, but there, he's also had those gaps in net where you make you scratch your head and you wonder why is this guy a starting goalkeeper in the Premier League for one of the biggest, bigger clubs in the world. So I want to get your thoughts on Kepa as a keeper so far at Chelsea um, and, and really what you can observe from his game that's maybe holding him back from being a little bit more surehand, a little bit more steady, and a little bit more reliable because obviously Chelsea spent a ton of money on him. They really do expect more from him, and I think they're not getting as much as they want right now. So give me your thoughts on Kepa. Um, and it really, in essence, his future at the club, because that's also come into question in recent weeks, is that there's been reports that he could perhaps, um, you know, be replaced, which, you know, seems kind of strange given the fact they spent so much money on him. But what are your thoughts on Kepa? No, of course, especially in the situation now, like if you look at um, the last couple of games uh, for Chelsea, Kepa hasn't had a clean sheet in seven straight games. And... You could say that the, the frustrations of the fans are warranted based on his performances recently. Um, you know, there's been a lot of um, head-scratching decision-making that he, is, that he has made in certain games. Um, you know, let's take, for example, against Everton, where he tried to play out the back and trying to rush I'm trying to rush a pass into the channel. And then, of course, it ended up into a lost possession counteract counterattack into goal um then there was a few other uh situations where you know issues in in crosses being coming into the box and not having the right positioning or coming out to to challenge balls that not necessarily has to uh or at times dropping back into his line but sometimes dropping almost back into his net and not reacting fast enough um you know i could i could understand why there would be um that sort of 
you know, idea about wanting to, to, to drop him or to sell him, you have a keeper that you spent 70, about, I would say about $70 million for or more, one of the highest paid keepers in the world. And there is that expectation that when you pay that much for a keeper, you would expect at least that they would be within, you know, the top two, three in the league in clean sheets, that they're stealing points to in games, that they're making a difference, that they're helping you progress in competitions, they're being leaders at the back. Yes, you're going to have your, your regular lapses and concentrations. There is going to be mistakes that are going to happen. There are sometimes going to be the uncontrollables, um, you know, deflections uh, or second or third balls that are, you know, second or third balls that are being saved and sometimes they're not being cleared out and you, you try your best to deal with them. But unfortunately, you know, sometimes with presence in the box, you're not able to get to them. Um, but again, for the price tag that is being paid, and you look at that, you wonder, well, you know, does it justify the performances that he has at the moment? Um, I don't see Chelsea personally um, looking for a new keeper in January because, in all honesty, it wouldn't be the right time to search a new keeper. Um, you won't have many teams that are going to be out there, especially uh, teams that are in the Champions League that are going to look to try to part ways with uh, either their starting goalkeeper or, or even or even possibly a second choice, but especially a club like Chelsea that is still in the competition, that is fighting for a Champions League spot, that will that is a team that wants to contend for the EPL title every year, are not just going to go for a mid-table keeper. You know, um, They're going to look to try to get a world-class goalkeeper in. They're going to want to have to splash probably even more money but you're not going to get, and I'm just going to throw out a random name here, but you're not going to go get, example, an Oblak in a January. It's not going to happen. You know, uh, Atletico Madrid will not let a keeper of that caliber just walk, regardless of the money, in the middle of the season. Um, you know, or even if they went and tried to get someone like Kasper Schmeichel, you know, who, you know, I could see being a fantastic fit at a club uh, like Chelsea or any other top three, four club in the Premier League. Um, but again, a club like Leicester may not want to, you know, allow him to leave at that time and of course knowing that Chelsea you know if, if, if the, the reports come out that they're going to want to look to find a new keeper they're going to want to you know cut their losses because let's be fair here you know if they were to sell Kepa they're not going to make that money back they're going to have a difficult time trying to find a team that's going to be willing to pay that fee or even a portion of it um, to be able to bring them onto their squad um, so you know uh, teams are obviously going to see that and um, they're, they're going to try to milk them for as much as possible and that's going to become very difficult um, I think right now the issue with Kepa um, a lot of it could be down to you know his decision making his concentration trying to do a bit too much you know um, we we saw last year the issues that he was having with Maurizio Sarri, especially with that, you know, that penalty shootout, not wanting to get subbed off, wanting to take that leadership role, be there, be the, you know, be the, the decisive force in the back. And there are still moments now where you see it, where, you know, a Kepa will come up big, come up big in situations, you know, on penalty kicks or, or, or you know, uh, last minute situation, you know, last minute scenarios in the box where he has to be able to make that big save to secure points. Um, but I do think that, you know, right now um, he's not doing himself justice with, with a lot of these mistakes. And sometimes they're coming with not properly reading the play. Like if you take the look at the goal against uh, uh, Bournemouth, where, you know, that ball's being flicked back in, players alone, balls come clear back towards Kepa. Kepa stepping out, he sees the ball come down to about chest level, rushes out right away, realizes the ball gets flicked over his head, and then he's caught in, in a bit of an, a no-man's-land situation where he's not sure what he should do. Um, and, you know, the 
even again, again, we go back again to the game um, in Everton where uh, we tried to step out on a on, on a one v one situation and right away committed way too early. Got caught with the body opening up. Ball gets played through him. There's not much you can really do in that situation there because he's already committed. He's already made the first move. Um, Chelsea really need for him to step up big in this moment. Is he the problem at the club? Is he the problem uh, or the 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 core? reason for the problems of the club you know uh, in the situation that they're in now in fourth place with you know uh, three points up on Spurs four points up on on Manchester United and Sheffield no I see a bit of part of the problems I would say so because again at the fee that you paid you would have expect him to be able uh, to be a lot more decisive look look at what Allison has done um, for Liverpool and you would expect that someone like Kepa would be able to do that for uh, Chelsea and, you know, um, a keeper of that caliber should be helping them contend also for the title. You know, look at them now. They're 20 points behind Liverpool. They're 10 points behind Leicester. Uh, and I'm saying that now as they have Leicester coming up, that point, that gap could be, um, excuse me, could be extended. So um, right now they do need him to, to really come up big. They need him to be a lot more sharper. They need him to be a lot more focused. They need him to be that leader at the back. We've got, a, you know, a big Champions League tie coming up. So um, right now Kepa just needs to be able to just ignore all the noise, forget about all these reports that are out there, you know, the, the fact of, you know, whether he should, he's not, um, he's the type of keeper that, you know, they, they probably will not want to have going forward in the, in the summer or next season. And he's just got to focus on just, you know, working on, on, on helping his club uh, progress. Yeah. I, I think, you know, it's, it's one of those things where, you know, you're in the middle of the middle of the season, they're still kind of on course for their, to meet their objectives, Chelsea. I think, you know, they do have the, the transfer ban lifted so they can do some things in January to help kind of solidify their position in the table and kind of see this thing out. Uh, obviously, they got, they got Bayern Munich in the round of 16, which um, is difficult. Uh, Bayern Munich are a team that's have been here before. They got a ton of good players, specifically Lewandowski, who's scoring at will, and he is capable of really giving Chelsea's backline uh, fits and as well as, of course, testing Kepa to the point where, you know, it, it could get ugly. We saw what happened with, uh, with Tottenham. So they, they got to be wary of that and cautious of the fact that they could, it could be lopsided if they're not careful. But, you know, there's, uh, I just want to briefly touch on, um, you know, moving, moving away from Kepa and his situation because I don't think it's going to switch uh, too much. Um, I think it's his job to lose. And at, at the very least, he's going to finish the season as the number one. And if things change uh, – as the season progresses, perhaps they'll reassess matters in the summer when they have the, uh, the luxury of time and the luxury of an entire window to assess things and to ultimately uh, see whether or not he is the long-term fit for the club. Uh, two coaching situations that are, are, are you know, developing what seems like every hour at this point um, because their situations are so dire. Uh, we have Carlo Ancelotti is being linked to the Everton job and Everton are I think 16th or 17th in the table so they're in a really uh difficult spot right now which uh you know, obviously it's kind of shocking to see a guy like Ancelotti who's uh, just days removed from not Monopoly job uh stepping into a new job back in England for a club that is uh again sitting uh, in a position where they could in fact be relegated uh is one situation. And then you have, of course, Mikel Arteta, who is reportedly uh, the likely candidate to take over um, at Arsenal. Uh, Roberto, I mean, what, what do you think of this situation specifically? Because I know uh, Arteta, none of these deals are, 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 are in fact confirmed yet at the time of recording, but I want to get your thoughts on Ancelotti. I mean, is he, given his, his 
uh, his career trajectory, you know, from PSG to Bayern to uh, some of the clubs he's coached to, now, uh, to recently Napoli, now to Everton. I, I mean, is this, is this, you know, and no offense to our, our, our Ever- uh, Evertonians listening, is this job kind of uh, a, a drastic s- a step back? Is, it, is this job beneath him? Um, and, if, and, and if so, what do you think has led to him and his struggles at some of the bigger clubs he's coached previously? Because I don't think anyone foresaw this happening at Napoli and him being replaced by the two in the middle of the season, but also jumping into a, a role where it's less than stable, there's a ton of pressure from the jump, and this could very well be maybe his last rodeo as, as a manager in the top flight because I don't know whether or not he's going to want to take on this, this sort of pressure, this sort of project. It seems to me is that maybe he's best suited for uh, international duty, international role. But give, give me your thoughts on Ancelotti's, I kind of guess, last couple years um, and whether, you th- whether or not you think uh, this Everton job is a fit because I've seen very mixed opinions on it uh, from what I've read on Twitter. Um, well, but just before getting into more of the, you know, whether it's a fit or not, um, just at, at this time is to look at Everton's situation where right now um, Duncan Ferguson is the, you know, caretaker slash interim manager at the club. And you're looking at two different personalities there where, you know, uh, Duncan Ferguson, as he is at the moment, is very lively, very energetic, feeding off the energy. The crowd is feeding off his energy. And right now he seems to be working with um, with a group that, you know, had been struggling the uh, since the beginning of the season, they they were in a relegation zone. They're just above a relegation zone. He's managed to notch up wins against Chelsea and manage a draw against Manchester United. Um, so, in terms of doing the job, quote unquote, to you know get this team out of their funk, um, you know, it seems like things are moving forward really well with him. Um, I don't think Everton would see him as the long term option. But then again, right? Uh, maybe uh, if, if, if a coach of you know, if his interim status manages to guide this team to the finals of a uh, of a of a cup competition, um, you know, for example, for the EFL Cup, or if he managed to get them up to mid table and whatnot, um, there's always a possibility that you know maybe they say, okay, well, you know, yes, we do have Ancelotti as a possibility, but if he's really bringing in these results and the fans are behind them and the players are behind them and there's a bit of sway there, maybe, but you know, all depends also too if someone like Ferguson uh, wants to have that type of job. But in terms of, again, the personality, um, you know, Carlo, Carlo Ancelotti is not that type of coach to go running down the sidelines, you know, um, hugging staff members, uh, knee sliding into, into the corner flag and fist pumping and whatnot. He's more of a calm, collected manager from the sidelines, very professional. Um, and again, this is, excuse me to say, this is not to say that Duncan Ferguson is not a professional. Uh, I should say that both of them have a different way of, you know, I guess, expressing themselves uh, in, in certain situations. Um, I don't see Ancelotti as the type also, you know, on the sidelines and yelling and screaming and, and pointing out gestures. Um, I think in a project like this, if he were to come on in January, let's say, um, it would be to mostly steady the ship and see, you know, okay, evaluate the players that you would have going into the summer. Um, and I guess, you know, uh, what he would probably do with, with Moise Keane, um, and that's probably another situation we're going to get into. Um, but it would give him an opportunity to sort of evaluate the team, see what he can do, start to slowly plant the seeds of the system that he wants, you know, maybe introducing his... his is a famous, you know, Christmas tree formation in there. And, you know, hopefully see what he would do in the summer if it would give him to him. However, a coach like Ancelotti, I don't see him taking over uh, a job like Everton 
at in, in, in the middle of the season, just above relegation zone, um, still fighting to try to get those results. You know, they're not that far away. There's still the possibility that they can drop right back into it. I think I could see him going in more into a summer type role where he would have the entire preseason to be able to then, you know, search on the transfer market to bring in certain players you know, has a chance to evaluate his squad even more, work on his formations, get a chance to try out uh, the, the squads uh, in in friendlies during the summer and really get to build the squad to the way he wants. Um, it, everyone can easily say it's a, it's, a, it's a step down. And maybe for him, it will not be a step down because it's, it's, it's a return to the Premier It would be a return to the Premier League for him. Um, I could see why people are looking at that way because – um, he would most likely be in a situation where he wouldn't be coaching a Champions League team next season or a team that would be in a European competition, bar any you know miraculous run of form. Um, but there's a potential that if he would have the reins in the summer and he gets to build the team the way he is, and being a fantastic man manager, maybe, quite possibly, maybe he can make this team contend. Um, and again, you look at the trajectory he had where when you know Bayern Munich, PSG. Napoli, things haven't seemed to work out at all those clubs. Um, you know, there was a lot of issues, especially the time when he was at Bayern Munich, about the intensities of his training. You know, when you go from Pep Guardiola to Carlo Ancelotti, there, there, there's a difference there. Not in the difference of the prestige of the manager, but in terms of someone like Guardiola, you know, heavy on, you know, the demands of his, of his players and the positional play, you know, focusing on everyone has their role and getting into and getting, you know, everyone is into the role. There's an intensity into their training to be able to mimic the scenarios that they're going to have on match today and really get them into game speed where Ancelotti, a lot more different, the low intensity, still coming from that, you know, Covertiano uh, school of, of Italian coaching where it's still very methodical, still very focused on technique and on detail and, and tactics. But again, the styles of training are a bit more different. And of course, when you start to lose the players on that aspect, you know, it's kind of maybe tough to try to lure them back in. And, you know, by the only way by doing so is through maybe results. You know, you got to build that trust, but also the results uh, throughout the leagues and in competitions and bringing in the trophies. Uh, and then, you know, look at the situation in Naples. Unfortunately, there we, we don't really know what happened in the locker room. Let's, let's be fair here. We can, we can read reports. We can hear what's coming out from the media, but we're not in the locker room. You know, whether people that were pro-Ancelotti, whether players that were not pro-Ancelotti, whose side was on during, you know, the mutiny and whatnot, having to do with ADL and, the, you know, Aurelio De Laurentiis. And I think it got to a point with everything happening at once. Um, I think right now, you know, it's a, it's a shame that he ended up losing the job there, but it's sort of now giving a chance to sort of, you know, focus and maybe going to Everton will get him away from the heavy limelight of, you know, being in, in a big club. Like if he were to go, for example, in Arsenal that are in a difficult situation, or if he were to, let's say, for example, take over from, uh, uh, take over at Manchester United, again, he would be back under that spotlight and huge expectations of there to bring his, his prestige and his background and his history into the club to try to bring them, you know, to a Champions League. Uh, victory. Um, I don't know. I think um, I. It's hard to say if it's if it's a step down. You can look at it that way because he's not at a at a top three, top four club. But I think it could be a big project for him. Maybe he could do something very interesting there. Um, but if not, yes, the international level could be something that you know may pique his interest. 
I do, I do funny enough remember once in his book that he had said that he would love to one day coach the Ivory Coast. So who knows? Maybe <laughs> you know, maybe we'd see him at the uh, in the head of an international team, whether it be an African nation or whether it would be another top European club. Uh, but uh, no, um, I I think that if he were to go to to Everton, um, I would see it more in the summer where he had time to evaluate the squad and really build it to uh, to the, to his way. Yeah. I, you know, I think it's, I think it's fascinating. I think I had a conversation with an Everton fan on Twitter and he was pretty much asking me whether or not I thought it was something that could possibly be realistic. Right. I don't think Everton fans envisioned a guy like Ancelotti being available. Right. I think, you know, there were some discussions about Arsenal possibly looking to hire him and pretty much how it went was I was like, you know, you never really never know. I think Arsenal probably would have had their first right of refusal. I think they probably would have had the first option because I think, you know, despite their, their difficult situation at this moment in time, I think Arsenal are still a club that uh, many managers would like to take under a job that does have its draws. It does have its allure, um, especially for the fact that it does have uh, quite a bit of attacking talent, has uh, some certain players in certain departments that um, a manager would want to coach. But I, yeah, I think it's, it's, it would be really interesting to see um, Ancelotti at Everton and whether or not he can kind of bring some semblance of balance, stability um, to this club, because uh, obviously Marco Silva wasn't doing it. Uh, and you really just look at, um, you know, the way things have gotten for Everton and they see their, their, their city rivals in, uh, in Liverpool thriving so well, I think Everton want to at least be back in that conversation as a club um, in the middle of the pack. And I think you're looking at the projects between them and with clubs like the Wolves and, uh, you know, even Leicester City are putting together. I think they want to kind of be more or less in that realm, in that area where they have a project that's uh, sustainable, it's on the rise, and it's something that Entrevolti can kind of grow with. So uh, that's going to be something to keep an eye on, of course, you know, once we, you know, uh, assuming it does uh, be, become finalized, which is something that we'll talk about, uh, you know, in the, uh, in the new year. Uh, it's definitely yeah. they're not the not the last time we discuss Ancelotti and whether or not uh, you this ultimately will be a, a good fit for him. But only time will tell. So uh, I'm just gonna move right in. I'm just gonna move right into Serie A because I think you know uh, there's obviously a lot to digest on a weekly basis with Serie A. I think um, you know, as Serie A guys uh, ourselves, let's you know let's dedicate the time to this league and kind of give us give our listeners a deep dive as to what's going on because I feel as though things are constantly developing. Um, you know, Napoli-Parma on the weekend, it was good. Gennaro Gattuso's first match in charge of the Partenope, and it did not go according to plan. Uh, it was much of the same lethargic, uninspiring play from Napoli that we've seen this entire season. They fell to Parma 2-1, a, a late game winner from Gervinho. Uh, Kulisevsky saw them up for the first goal. He's been uh, a sensation. He's a player we actually profiled uh, not, many, not too long ago on one of our, our previous episodes, but... From what you saw in that performance by Napoli, as it, do you think that Gattuso can turn this around? Because I feel that there's there's too much talent on this squad for them to be, I think, sitting at eighth or ninth at this point in time, number one. Number two, the fact that they've completely gone downhill in year two under Ancelotti, and now Gattuso has to come in once again after for a, for a project, which I don't think many envision him take undertaking, if you, if you, know, if you recall. Uh, Roberto, he came in around the same time, more uh, minus more or less a week or two uh, difference of time uh, at that Milan job when Vincenzo Montella was sacked. I don't think anyone envisioned him being more than a six-month guy 
and all of a sudden he turned a six-month uh, audition into a contract extension to 2021, which he didn't outlive. But you know, he found a way to convince uh, the ownership that he was a manager that's worth you know investing in. And I think you know, Gattuso has that golden opportunity now with Napoli, a team that has more talent than he did at Milan. Yes, but it's also much more pressure to finish top four because I think it's quite clear they didn't expect themselves to be in this position. They'd expected them to be challenging for a Scudetto, or at least in the conversation uh, as one of the two or three uh, top teams in the table. So uh, I just want to get your thoughts on Napoli's situation at this moment in time and what you saw from Gattuso and uh, really Alex Merritt because I think, you know, despite the defeat, Merritt was a standout performer. and He's kind of growing uh, on a weekly basis, and he's becoming uh, one of the top keepers in Italy uh, very quickly. So I just want to get your thoughts on uh, on that performance. Sure. Uh, and I think if we can just go to Mered directly from the start, um, without a doubt, at least this season, easily in the conversation for top three so far, top three keepers in Serie A this season at the moment. Um, regardless of the situation that Napoli uh, is in, um, or the, the issues plaguing the club or their standings, there's one constant is that every time Mere steps onto the pitch, he's going to have an incredible performance. He's going to make some heart-stopping saves. He's going to be decisive. And if we look at the game on Parma, there was a possibility for that game to be over a lot earlier. Uh, of course, in, on, on Napoli's end, there were many chances that they failed to finish past Luigi Giuseppe, but in the turn that Parma also had their opportunities to get that, that lead a lot earlier. Um, we take in about, I remember, in the 70th minute, Gervinho uh, takes the ball right through, and Meta steps up to about uh, 12 yards, great set position, balance, makes a close-range close range save to parry out from about 12 yards, and then, you know, within 15 minutes later, when we're you know, right before the um, the injury time goal, um, just before getting into the 90th minute, he makes uh, a, a strong save on the angle uh, with his feet. Excuse me. Um, you know, Jovino cuts in, takes a hard low shot. Marek cannot go down with his hands. It's really close. It's central to the body. Manages to stick the leg out. The ball gets down the middle, but it still gets away from a dangerous area. But it's just the fact that you know, he's making those key saves every week. You know, uh, it's not something that he just does on, on, on one, you know, on one match day and then the next match day he concedes four and then another match day maybe he'll get a clean sheet. No, he's making these stand-up performances week after week. Um, going into to, to the overall look of it, I think um, Gennaro Gattuso does have his work cut out for him. Um, you know, he's taking over a club right now that are kind of walking on eggshells. We know that, you know, De Laurentiis seems to always, you know, have his finger on the trigger. Um, but of course, like you had just mentioned, we can't underestimate Gattuso. He took a, a Milan squad that, you know, obviously if you're going to compare it to the Milan squads of, uh, of the, the past couple of years, um, not excessively strong and have struggled in their own right, but managed to get them within the point of a Champions League spot. Now he's taking the team, as you mentioned, that, you know, on paper and even on the pitch. Um, they have they have the talent to be able to, they have the talent where they should be competing right now for a Scudetto. But right now they're competing to stay relevant in mid-table. And, you know, Gattuso's coming in and then, you know, hopefully going to try to be able to implement his philosophy as quick as he can. Um, try to get the players back all on the same page because, of course, you know, the situation at Turin where they had that 
that mutiny and you know the disagreements with management and not wanting to go into the tiro and whatnot um there's a very fragile mindset there so gattuso has to come in and we know how he is as a person we know how much he, he cares for his players, how much he loves the game, how much he takes his role extremely seriously. And if he can transmit that same passion and energy and that grinta to that squad, there is a possibility. And I strongly believe that they can, that they're going to rise up into the tables and hopefully, you know, be able to get back into that conversation of finding a Champions League spot next year. Because it wouldn't be, a, honestly, it would be a failure for them and most likely for the fans if they would not even get into the Europa League next year. Um, you know, they're not that far behind, but it's easy that, you know, with the way that a lot of the provincial teams are playing this season, you know, you're going to uh, Hellas Verona, you're going to Eleche, you're going out to Udinese. They're, they're not the easiest of games. So he needs to be able to collect those results. All right. Uh, if, you're, if there's an expectation for them to, to pick up wins against uh, Juve in there, uh, of course, would like it. But it's the wins against the Provinciali and those mid-table teams and, you know, teams at the bottom of the table that where Gattuso really needs to get, really needs to get the squad to rally around and pick up those wins. Um, I think it was a bit of a, of, of a difficult debut for him, personally. Um, just having watched the game and seeing the boatload of chances that they've had within the 18-yard box, especially in Sydney, who had multiple occasions where he could have finished this game, where he could have had himself his own hat-trick, you know, um, shots going directly into the hands of Luigi Giuseppe, balls getting skied into the fifth and sixth row, uh, you know, Mario Rui playing crosses into the box that are not be, that are, are not finding his intended target or finding the target, but then that's a player unable to finish. So there was way too many missed chances despite dominating possession in that game and really trying to push Parma, you know, into their defensive third. And they couldn't seem to click when it mattered the most. And it's just a shame of how even both goals had happened. They conceded a goal off a throw-in, and they conceded the, 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 the Jovino's goal off a counterattack and a slip. And that's, it's, it sort of sucks the air out of it, you know, uh, out of it because you look at Gattuso who's, who's trying to go in is going into this game and hoping to try to get you know a positive result turn things around and you concede two um two goals that could have easily been avoided you know um so I do think his work is really cut out for him we you know hopefully uh De Laurentiis gives him to, you know gives him the end of the season and, and, and allows him to have that carte blanche to really you know uh, tighten the grip and get this team back and right the ship because as you said there's too much talent on this team um to, to miss out on a champions league spot next season and honestly this team should really be con- competing for scudetto now moving over to juventus right the team uh, that you know <laughs> has been beating them out for, for the league title the past couple of years um there's been a the Juventus have come under a lot of criticism, uh, specifically Maurizio Sarri. And I know Pet and I have been talking about Sarri uh, over the past couple episodes and whether or not he's kind of lived up to the expectations or the hype um, the past ten, couple years, right? As a manager and, and his overall growth, um, you know, combining his final season at Napoli, his one season at Chelsea, and so far with his first, uh, you know, season at Juventus. But I think there's something to be said about. Um, the recent performances from Juventus, I, I, for whatever reason, I feel as though I've seen myself, I don't know if you, you, you believe the same, something from their performances these past couple games against uh, Leverkusen in the Champions League and on the weekend, 3-1 victory over Udinese at home. Now, of course, Udinese are not a team that's, that, that should be uh, used as a great standard, great measure of whether or not a team has uh, 
effectively returned back to the level of, uh, of, of football and level of status that people expected of Juve. But I will say this is I think this seems as though that that defeat to Lazio, um, where there was their first, uh, first defeat of the season, first defeat in all competitions, it seemed to have humbled them a bit. At least initially, from what I've seen from the past couple uh, performances from the club, right? Uh, Compounded with the, that, and you have the the fact that sorry doesn't seem to be as reserved or have any has much reluctancy or hesitant uh, uh, behavior in kind of throwing out you know, his attacking talent, right? I think early on in the season we saw um, he would kind of you know rotate between Iguain and DiBala. And one player would be on the bench, and the other one would be starting. And now it seems as though that he's in a position where I think he may feel comfortable, you know, throwing his attacking trio out all at the same time and letting them kind of build that 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 chemistry, that that harmon harmony uh, between each other. And on the weekend, I think you know it, that kind of came into into effect, right? We saw Ronaldo get two goals. He has, I think, nine of the season, four in his last three games. He looks like he's primed to go on one of those runs where he looks uh, unstoppable. And I think that he's been one of those players where for all their money's being paid for his salary, that many of were kind of you know, wondering, well, what do we have left in this player? Uh, he seems like he's kind of turned the corner. He's, he's kind of turning it on. So uh, my, my question to you is this, and you're given the landscape of the, of the top, you know, two to three clubs now, when I say three, because I think Lazio are uh, deserving of that right to be in the consideration as a, a team that's only three points back of first. Do you think that Juventus have turned the corner? Uh, I know they have some areas of their squad that they do need to work on. I think defensively, Bonucci, Delict, and I even say uh, Demerol look really solid in, in, in limited action. Uh, the midfield still is a work in progress. I, I don't think that's going to be changing much, but I think if they're able to kind of get a decent midfield performances, I think their offense could carry uh, quite a bit of the workload. Do you think that Juventus are starting to at least turn the corner to you know, kind of blend the performances with the results? Because despite you know, what's, what we've seen from optics is that they are still in first. They are in the round of 16 with a great draw, as we previously touched upon. Do you feel that they have turned the corner at this point in time, or do you feel there's some things that you, they're, you're not quite convinced of yet? I think the game against Sudanese was really the spark because it is the first time this season, um, and I'm sure someone will correct me if I'm wrong, but I, I, I do 100% believe that uh, it is the the first time that Maurizio Sarri has decided to start uh, uh, Ronaldo, Higuain, and Dybala together up front. And you saw right away how lethal it was, regardless of the fact that uh, Udinese off the ball were playing in a 5-3-2 and they were parking those five guys in the, uh, in the back uh, right at the top of the box. Honestly, they could have had they could have had even the bench on the field there. They could have 20-odd players on the pitch. And the just the way that all three were, were with the link-up play, movements off the ball, crosses coming in, runs on the blind side, um, you know, taking their chances right away. You saw just how dangerous this, this team was. And they were, they were finding pockets of space everywhere on the Sudanese side. And I do think that, yes, as you, you had uh, mentioned, that, you know, Ronaldo has probably hit that, that point where, you know what, he is primed to go on one heck of a run. Uh, where, you know, there were criticisms the last couple of weeks where, you know, maybe he warranted to, to, to have sat out a game or warranted to be substituted because he just wasn't performing as you would expect him to perform. And, and you know, it's funny enough that the two players that were sort of, I don't, I don't know if I want to use the word outcast, but the two players that 
and the club really wanted to push out are the two most performing players on the team right now that are giving uh, providing the most impact and that are creating the most synergy with Ronaldo Fun, and that's Iguain and Dybala. And it's, and it's beautiful to see at this moment. And I think, you know, if Maurizio Sarri sticks to this formula, um, there's, there's, there's a huge chance that, you know, they're going to defend that, uh, that Serie A title. It's going to go down to the wide with Inter. There's a huge chance that they're going to be able to power through into the Champions League. You know, uh, we do know, especially with the amount that they've paid and the investment, not that they played in Ronaldo and, and the investments that they made in the squad, it's either Champions League trophy or bust, but there is an opportunity right now for them to kick it up to high gear and start to really show their dominant side because way too often this season, earlier on in the season, they look passive and a bit lethargic and conservative. And you almost thought that there were moments where, you know, when is Sarri ball? When are we going to see it? He, does he have the right players for it? Yes, there are still issues in the midfield. We still, you know, sorry, Juve still lacks that, um, that, that you know, five-star midfielder uh, who's going to be able to play those penetrative passes, who's going to drive forward, who's going to be, you know, that, that key link in the midfield. But, Right now, you know, seeing players like Iguain and Dybala perform um, despite the fact that they were wanted to be pushed out and to see Ronaldo hit their stride, I think Sarri has them in the right spot right now. Um, it was an incredible against Udinese. However, there were times during that game where in the second half, you know, they sort of moments where they checked out and they took their foot off the gas, which they've done multiple times this season. And we saw it with the goal that was conceded late into the game. I was but, just about to um, say that. Yeah, they've been, they, they haven't been, uh, and I don't think many people expected them, um, you know, to be, uh, have a defensive record reminiscent of the days of BBC. But I think they, they, they expected, uh, you know, between Bonucci, Delict, Demiral, uh, to be a little bit more formidable at the back. I think, obviously, you know, they're starting to, in that regard, at least as a bigger team that kind of leaks in the occasional goal yeah. more often than, than, than we expect. Uh, you, can, you can see the impact felt from uh, Chiellini being out. And I think that's something that, over time, Obviously, in the league, they're in a good position. But, you know, in the Champions League, I think they're really going to feel that. Um, you know, I think we, we, we both probably would agree that they're going to advance past Leon. But once you start getting to those really uh, rigorous, really difficult, um, you know, the quarterfinals, semifinals, however you want to slice it, that's where I got a Chiellini is vital. Um, he's the, not only a great defender, but he's a leader. and He can really uh, help guide a lot of those younger players um, through difficult times. So, uh, yeah, I, I would definitely agree with you on the fact that, you know, there are certain things that they kind of have to fine tune. They have to kind of uh, tighten the screws a bit. Um, you know, as a team, I don't think we've seen the best from Juve this year, um, which makes it fascinating too, because, right, I think this is something, a model they've been following, uh, you know, even long before this season, right, under Allegri, where they always seem to kind of labor more or less through the first half of the season, be in a, posi- in a, in a prime position, and then eventually – January, February, March, uh, Allegria has always pretty much said that the season's kind of split into two, and that's where they really start to kind of kick it into an overdrive, and they really just kind of put a stronghold uh, on whatever competition they're in. So uh, I think Juventus are our team, again, week to week, we got to keep monitoring because I think it's really tough to kind of lend a lot of, put a lot of credence and, and, and value in a performance at home against a team like Udinese, who are in, a, are in that position where they're just trying to, at this point, uh, play damage control and not get beat too badly, right? But uh, real quickly, before we go to our player profile and we wrap this thing up, I, I want to spend some time on Lazio. Now, uh, I know that you know, everyone's talking about Juve Inter in the title race and you know, how they're kind of going back and forth at each other and how, everything's, how everything is neck and neck between them two. But I think we have to really 
kind of give Lazio the attention and recognition they deserve because at this point in time, they're only three points back of those two clubs at the top. Um, and not only that, but on a, an incredible run. Um, of course, they had a, a, a 2-1 victory, a, a thriller, a late uh, come-from-behind come victory against Cagliari, fourth-place Cagliari. Uh, Luis Alberto in the 93rd minute and Felipe Caicedo in the 98th minute uh, to give them, of course, again, the 2-1 lead. Their eighth win in a row in, in league play. Of course, we know they bowed out in the Europa League. Um, their last defeat dates back to September 25th against Inter, 1-0. Um, Roberto. Let me, let me, I ask you this question. Should Lazio be considered for, for the title? Do you think they're a team that with the Europa League kind of being out of the equation, with all their efforts and, every, and all the resources available to them, being able to go completely into uh, a title race, do you think they're a team that could kind of stick around for the long haul, or do you think this is something that's going to eventually fall off? Because Simone Inzaghi, listen, he was linked to the Juve job in the summer, and everyone kind of uh, gasped at that. But he's doing a sensational job with Lazio. And normally, we'd expect Lazio to kind of uh, have those, those spells throughout the season where they kind of fall apart and they look really good. Again, we saw the victory over Juventus at home. But then they'll have a, a – they'll, they'll, they'll kind of uh, – things will fall apart the next game. And they won't quite put it all together and, and, and really be a team that should be uh, taken seriously. We know they have Trio Mobile. We know they have Luis Alberto, Milinkovic Savic. At the back, they have Strakosha, who I'm sure you like and rate really well. And then they have Francesco Cherby anchored the back line as the captain. Do you think Lazio have enough to stay in this uh, title race? You know what? Um, Lazio will go as far as Chiro Immobile. Uh, sorry. They will go as far as um, Chiro Immobile and uh, Luis Alberto uh, will take the squad. Um, two of the most impactful players for Lazio this season. And, and of course, seeing how the team has been defensively, Strakosha, you know, uh, as usual at times, um, standing up as a monster in goal. Will they be, you know, should they be considered a threat? I do believe so, because I think the worst thing that you can do is underestimate the squad. Um, and knowing that coming up now, for example, they do have the the, the, the Supercopa against Juve, um, we're probably going to get to see, you know, when it's going to come down to the thick of things, if they're still in that race and they're going to have those games against Juve and Inter and Roma later down in the season, how they're going to be able to perform deep into this campaign, um, I think we'll probably get a good idea uh, about, you know, the strength of, of this squad going forward. And I don't think that we should really count this team out. And I, and, and Simone Inzaghi should really get the credit that he deserves. You know, um, we always we always see it as this, as this two-horse race between Inter, Juve, Juve, Inter. And we tend to forget that there is another team involved. And I do really believe that you know, um, in that Capo Cannoniere form that Immobile is in at the moment, um, they're going to be a threat regardless. And if they can pick up, you know, keep picking up those three points against the mid-table teams and, you know, they can, you know, flex their muscle uh, against uh, Inter and Juve later, down, later on in the season, there is a strong possibility that, um, you know what, I, I wouldn't, I would be surprised, but I, I wouldn't be surprised. I, I would be very. I would still be surprised if they, they still manage to finish. If they finish the season and they win the scudetto, because I'm sure if you pull a uh, hundred people, a hundred Serie A fans, 
there's a there's a strong chance that a lot of them will you know have not really have them there as winners at the end of the season but i wouldn't be surprised because seeing as how inzaghi has built the squad and seeing the form that they're in and especially milinkovic uh, taking into account also you know guys like acerbi and milinkovic savic and uh, strakosha Joaquin correa too is another one yeah, who i think Joaquin you know Correa's in the been... conversation uh, of the attack which i know alberto yeah. and immobile get a lot of credit for Joaquin Correa is one of those players that's really coming to form, really coming to life uh, at the right time for them. And then you even look at the fact, the addition of Lazzari, who was yeah. uh, a, a, a player who's incredibly impactful at Spal. Now that he's kind of being thrusted into a more prominent role a big, at a bigger club, he's really starting to kind of show what type of player he can be. And I think this is also a really good audition for him for speaking on the national team picture because I think the fullback positions he can kind of play as a wingback he can play as a traditional fullback and I think he's someone to consider in that conversation as well but if you look at the entire project that Matsu have been able to build over the past couple of years it's astonishing the fact that and I don't know if it's this is more so the fact that Lautito is tough to deal with but um, the fact that they've been able to keep this core group intact right because I think you know when you look at a guy like Milinkovic Savic you know he's was rumored to be sold a couple summers ago end up staying another season and then another season so I think this could be one of those cases where if they don't do something special this year there's a good possibility that perhaps they will lose a player or two in the summer obviously with the way they're kind of overachieving and they're kind of soaring up the table now they're in that conversation for the title a lot more clubs around Europe are going to be looking at Lazio and saying oh I want a Luis Alberto or I want Milinkovic Savic or I want Joaquin Correa and it's difficult for a team like Lazio to say no to a difficult a high offer excuse me so Look, I think we're well, 16 rounds in. I think it's, you know, we're getting to that halfway point of the season where you really start to kind of learn what, what clubs are pretenders, what clubs are pretenders, and, uh, excuse me, pretenders and contenders. And I think you really start to kind of make the most of what's going on at the top of the table. And you can see that Inter, Juve, and Lazio are the top three clubs at this point in time. But that race for fourth, once again, is going to be very, very intriguing down the stretch because I think you can name on three four on you know, three to four teams who will be in contention for that. I think it, can re- it will really be a dogfight till the very end. But uh, Roberto, I think uh, we're ready for the player profile. Are you ready for this? Yeah, definitely. Um, if, if it's okay, I just want to add one last thing about uh, sure. Absolutely. is that, um, you know, like we mentioned with the Europa League out of the way is that they'll be able to possibly take advantage of the fact that Inter and Juve um, are still in European competitions and as the play, as the teams, you know, go deep into the competitions and dealing with the fatigue and squad rotations and whatnot, you know, the schedule is going to be a lot less for Lazio. So hopefully, you know, um, they'll be able to have a fresher squad and they might not have that that, that fatigue and, and that extended travel times, um, you know, with the European schedules. So they can actually have a good chance just based on the fact that they only have one campaign to really focus on. Well. If you also include the Coppa Italia, but more or less that, you know, they can take advantage of the fact that Juve and Inter um, will probably be having to deal with uh, a lot longer and bigger schedule because we're in European competitions. Yeah, 100%. You know, those those uh, grueling travel days, especially in the Europa League, I know that was something as a Milan fan, uh, you know, I think I definitely saw it take its toll on the club as the season progressed. And you can even make the case that you, we've seen it, you know, with uh, with Lazio, right? They, a team that's been doing extremely well in the league didn't make it out of the group. And I don't know if that's really down to the fact that it's either they're tired or their mind's not completely in that tournament. However, the case may be, 
I think Lazio fans have to be really pleased with their position at this point in time because I think, like I said, I think they understood that they had a talented squad. The fact that they were able to keep this nucleus intact was going to give them more opportunities, uh, more opportunities than not, than not this season. But the fact that they're even in the conversation and three points back of, of, of being at top of the table, that speaks volumes to the project that are being built. And uh, the fact that Simone Inzaghi has been able to kind of quite a lot of critics that, uh, that, that he's gotten over the past handful of years as a manager who does have the ability, does have the acumen, but for whatever reason is not, is not quite at that level where he's able to prove he's worthy of the next step, worthy of a more uh, significant project. So, uh, Lazio are a team that we will definitely be talking about um, in upcoming podcasts. So, Roberto, time for the player profile. Okay, so Roberto, obviously, as a goalkeep, goalkeeping expert, we're going to have you come on and pretty much profile um, a name that you know many people may not be familiar with but who has been uh, impressing on a week-to-week basis at a smaller club. And, of course, you know, we like to provide our listeners with that, that niche name that you know, fans should be keeping a close eye on, as, of course, his future does uh, appear very bright. So, Roberto, tell us who you're going to be profiling today. Yeah, so I'm going to be profiling Andre Yonit Radu, uh, currently on loan at Genoa, uh, owned by his parent club, Inter. So he is going to be the goalkeeper uh, that I'm going to look at today in the player profile. And Yonid Radu, uh, 22 years old, originally came from the Stella Bucharest and then Dinamo Bucharest Academy, um, later going into the Pergolotese Youth to then find his way into uh, the Inter Youth Academy uh, during the 13-14 season. And, um, you know, at 22 years old, already he has 14 appearances uh, for you know, the, Roma- the Romanian U21 team. And, you know, there there is this view that he's a part of this golden generation of, of Romanian players with the potential to hopefully, you know, become the future uh, starter for this team. Um Jonat Radu is, as I mentioned, owned by uh, Inter Milan. Um, he once was, when he was a part of the uh, the, the, the academy, uh, had actually won the uh, via, the prestigious uh, Via Reggio tournament. Excuse me, back in 1415, uh, where he really got to showcase his talent within the academy. Um, funny enough, he actually played against uh, Pierluigi Bolini when they had beaten uh, Hellas Corona in that 1415 final. And um, also ended up also playing the Viareggio Cup the, the year later, um, helping the team get into the semifinals of the losing out to Palermo then. Um, his situation is a bit more different than um, a former Inter goalkeeper who is quote-unquote destined to have hopefully one day you know, become a first-team starter that in Francesco Bardi, is that um, he actually did make one appearance for Inter prior to it. And he's been able to get loaned out and play directly well. Yes, he went to play in City B. He had, um, you know, uh, 22 games that he played with uh, Avellino in City B with, um, in the 17-18 season. But um, the next season went away directly into Serie A with, uh, with Genoa. And he had first made his, his debut for the club there um, uh, during that 18-19 season where he basically, you know, sent Federico Marchetti uh, to the bench and it was, you know, 33 games that he got to play last season, six clean sheets. 
And to look at his profile as is, the one standout trait that we have from Bjorn Radu is how in how really, you know, exceptionally good he is on handling crosses. We know this is a part of the game that sometimes goalkeepers struggle with because, you know, we're dealing with the trajectory of the ball, the type of crosses that are coming in and being able to deal with the number of bodies that are in the box and sometimes can make them very difficult to handle. Jonas Radu has this, this air of confidence when it comes with dealing with crosses. And there's so much about his, his technique um, that allows him to have that success. You know, his aggressive starting position, his footwork, sharp steps prior to the takeoff, um, his great vertical leap coming up nice and strong, body well-balanced, arms out, clean hands, collecting the ball, uh, spatial awareness in the box, aware of the, the, the movements that are happening, finds those, that, those small spaces. And honestly, whether there's one person in the box who's got to come challenge or he's trying to power two, three, four players to be able to punch out or claim a cross, um, he has that confidence in himself. And honestly, whether it's, in, whether it's, a, it's an in-swinger going towards the far post or it's an out-swinger out to 12 yards, and generally, he deals with them very well and he has quite a good success rate. However, of course, once you get into a situation where you become very confident in a certain task, you tend to want to take a bit more risks. Um, and that's sometimes where uh, Radu will have that uh, moments where he might take risks that he doesn't necessarily need to take. So sometimes he'll come off further uh, from his line, out, you know, out further than 12 yards to try to punch out a cross that he doesn't necessarily need to get to. Or he'll try to chase a ball that's being, you know, swerved in past the far post. Um, and then you'll have to retreat back to his line because he might not get to it in time. Um, or even sometimes he'll try to come out and hesitate to, to attack a ball where the strikers already won it. But most of the time, you'll see him come out strong, high in the air, collecting those balls, or just powering through with a nice, strong wrist, being able to punch out. Um, another part of that, when it comes with, with collecting the ball off crosses, is his, his intention to want to play out beyond opposition lines. Now, um, if anybody had seen the, uh, the, the general Fiorentina game this season, um, this is one of the, the, the main examples that I want to touch upon, where right after dealing with a ball crossed in, he ran up to the top of the box and looked right away to play a volley directly over Fiorentina's defensive lines, defensive lines, catching the team on transition, ball falls directly pinpoint onto the foot of Christian Kwame, and it lead into a goal, actually being the game-winning goal. And he's done it a few times this season, also against Milan, um, collected a loose ball in the box, looks for the looks for the clearance catches Milan trying to reorganize finds Christian Kwame you know in um, Milan's uh, defensive half and you have a 2v2 situation there and that's what we're looking you know that's what people are looking for these days coaches want from goalkeepers those that are adapting to the modern game being able to pick out you know those counterattacking situations off you know whether it be a cross or a shot stopping situation you know trying to play through play above play around play beyond opposition lines and that's where he does uh, you know very well because he's quick to pick out those scenarios um also too it's how uh Radu deals with long range shots and you can see a lot of the times this season he tends to be the keeper that will stay a bit closer to his line about a yard or two off of it max to be able to deal with those hard low grass cutting shots um, his footwork and his positioning allows him to really, you know, get down, you know, shift over laterally, nice push off, get low to the ground, strong hands, might not catch a lot of them, but he's able to parry them wide away outside the box. And it's his positioning really that gives him that opportunity to be so successful in those long range shots. And just his stop shopping in general, he's actually pretty quick on his, uh, on his line and dealing with his reactions. 
Um, however, you know, um, he, there's always going to be parts of his game that are going to need improvement. And um, a lot of the times it's dealing with angle shots. Now, Radu seems to have this uh, habit of being a bit too close to his near post. And a lot of the times he, on angled shots, whether they're being, you know, struck in his bubble or being curled, uh, you know, to the far post, uh, a lot of times his body's not fully behind the ball. Um, let's take in, you know, take for one of the best examples uh, was against Lecce. You know, Falco had a wonderful strike. Let's take nothing away from it. It was a beautiful strike. It was an angled shot from about, you know, 14, 15 yards. But if you were to take a still image of that goal and you draw a line from the far post to near post and you bring it in that triangle, you would see that his body is not fully behind the ball. And he'll tend to also open up his body a bit more, expecting, you know, that cross to come in when a lot of the times it's going to be a shot. And then he's caught having to readjust, cross over, try to reach for it. And, you know, a lot of the times these are balls that he's able, that he would be able to get to, but he has that knack of sometimes being too close to his near post. Um, overall, he's an extremely confident goalkeeper. He, 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 he has big trust in his abilities. Um, as I said, he's, he's got very sharp footwork, strong reactions, very good shot stopper, excellent on dealing with crosses, great vertical leap, as I said. And this is the type of keeper that maybe he, you know, Inter may see him as the, the heir to Handanovic. It's hard to see if he will or if he will not. What would be held against him is the fact that, you know, he has no uh, experience playing in a European competition. He plays for a club that um, is fighting, you know, relegation. And, you know, he's not what you would say as a household name for a team like Inter who, you know, want to compete for Scudetto every year, want to fight for a Champions League spot, go deep into the competition. But, you know, it's always that, you know, saying where, you know, you're not going to get that experience if you're not in the competition. And if you're not in the competition, you're not going to get that experience. So um, I think there's a reason why Inter activated the buyback clause on him and uh, loaned him back out to Genoa because he was going to get a starting job there. They trust him at the club. Don't look at the standings. Watch the games. And I think that's one of the worst things that you can do when, you know, you're trying to judge a goalkeeper is you're looking at the scoreline, you're looking at the standings, you see they took five goals, and you're like, okay, well, you know what? He took five goals in that game. But, you know, you have to look at those five goals. You have to look at what he did overall, how he organized his team, you know. And I think that's another thing that he does extremely well, too, is that um, he organizes his team. He's always in constant communication. He has that air, that, that air of security, sense of security, that's what I was looking for, um, to the team. And so, of course, there's that trust there that you have that insurance policy in the back. So, you know what, um, if Handanovic decides to one day move on from Inter, or if he decides to call it quits at that club, I do think there's a possibility that, you know, maybe Radu could become uh, a future starting goalkeeper. Or maybe Inter next season might decide, you know what, let's bring him in. Let's have him be inter. Uh, let's have him be Handanovic's understudy for a year, and probably slowly progress him into maybe a starting job if Handanovic decides to leave, uh, decides to leave the club. So um, I would highly suggest for those that have never seen him play, take the time, watch the general games, forget about where they are in the standings, but watch him because you have a potential um, number one starting keeper uh, for the Romanian national team right here in Serie A and the potential future starting goalkeeper for Inter Milan. So who knows? Roberto, fantastic profile on Radu. A player I've watched quite a bit uh, as a Serie A 
uh, aficionado myself, but I think uh, you did a great job of giving the listener a little bit more insight on his background, his his profile, what he does well, what he has to work on, and overall what his future projects. Um, for me, I think, look, I think Inter's situation is very steady, very uh, you know, stable in, in, goalkeep- in, in the net. Uh, with Handanovic being one of the best goalkeepers in the world, in my opinion. I don't think he gets the credit he deserved, deserves. I think in, those who watch Serie A understand he's one of the top three, four, easily. Some people would even make the case that he's probably the best behind maybe uh, Wojciech Chesney. But I think Radu in time, if he, uh, whether or not he stays at Genoa, whether he kind of moves to another club in Italy, um, or to your point, you know, serves as an understudy behind Handanovic, gets that, that, uh, that, a valuable experience to uh, you know train uh, on a regular basis under a world class keeper. I think it only bodes well for his future. He's still a young kid, and I think a lot of times people try to rush certain uh, goalkeepers into the line like quicker than they're ready. And I think for me, when I look at Radu, he does a lot of things well for a team like Genoa, who uh, under Tiago Mota right now uh, is a team that's going to face a lot of goals that are susceptible to uh, conceding. And I think Radu is ultimately put in those positions where, uh, you know, he is able to showcase a lot of what he is, is capable of, yes, but he's also uh, prone to uh, allowing goals, which is not always his fault because obviously in, in, as a goalkeeper uh, yourself, you would agree that, you know, sometimes you're kind of uh, the last line of defense and you have to kind of bail out your defenders and their mistakes. So uh, time will tell to see what Radu's future projects, but definitely want to keep an eye on. So, all right, so that wraps up episode 29 of the State of Play pod. Email us at stateofplaypod at gmail.com for sponsorship and collaboration. You can find me on Twitter at Matt underscore Santangelo. Make sure you are following the State of Play pod uh, Twitter handle at State of Play pod there. Roberto, where can people find you and tell us what you're working on? So people can follow my thoughts, opinions, and analysis of all things goalkeeping on Twitter at rgrosso84. Uh, it's where I'm the most active on. For, um, for those who are currently picked up the latest volume four of the Scouted Handbook, I do have a profile in there on Charles goalkeeper Alexander Nubel. And if you happen to have the previous edition, volume three, um, it was my debut in there where I did a profile on Fiorentina goalkeeper Bartolome Dragowski. And um, if you uh, want to go back and read a nice little uh, long-form piece that I had done in the past for these football times, um, I've written a piece on uh, Alfred Gomez for them, uh, one of my favorite pieces that I, that I wrote. So, uh, yeah, listen, so if you guys want to be able to follow All Thoughts Goalkeeping, you guys can follow me on Twitter. And Matthew, thank you very much. Again, thank you to also you, uh, thank you to Pet and to Martino for having me on. It was an absolute pleasure uh, for, to make my debut on a podcast. And, um, you know, we'll be back in the future. Pleasure as ours, Roberto. Thank you so much for coming on. And, of course, thanks to you, the listener, for joining us in 2019 for the State of Play pod, podcast. We really do appreciate it. And we look forward to talking with you guys in 2020. Have a great holiday season. Bye for now.